There it goes, deep into center field. Way, way back goes Matty Alou, and that ball is in astro orbit. And the little dynamo, the toy cannon, now has 76 runs batted into the year. What a shot. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Toy Cannon Cannon. I'm Vic Raghupathy. And I'm Jacob Wessels, and we're excited to bring you guys our new and improved version just one episode in. Oh, yeah. We certainly assessed what we needed to change after that first episode because as fun as it was, it was kind of a doozy. We got it down to an hour, but when we originally recorded it, it was like over two hours worth of content. And so we're, we're more focused this time. We're coming in with a better game plan. I've actually prepared, so we'll see if it works out better. We're going to have something a little more streamlined for you today. It's just going to be me and Jacob. Sometimes it'll be two people. Sometimes it'll be three people. If you're a big Matt Wilson fan, I wouldn't worry. He'll be back in the future. If I know anything about human nature, everyone is a big Matt Wilson fan. Very fair. But today you're just going to have to be stuck with us, I guess. Howard Pollitt, an early win. Roy Campanella. Van the career of Van Lingle Mungo is one of unfair circumstances and promises unfulfilled. For one thing, try saying his name, Van Lingle Mungo. Van Lingle Mungo. I defy you to recite that name and not end up with a smile on your face. Certainly the man possessing such a mellifluous identifier promises to be just as harmonious as his name, right? Well, the truth is Van Lingle Mungo was a mean SOB. He drank a lot and he would fight anyone, including and perhaps especially his teammates. His manager, Casey Stengel, once said, Mungo and I got along just fine. I won't stand for no nonsense. And then I'd duck. But Mungo's manager before Stengel, Wilbur Robinson, also said something just as indicative of Mungo's style. He is another Dazzy Vance, I'm telling you. He can certainly buzz the ball over. Say, maybe he is another Walter Johnson. There's the promise. What about the circumstance? Van Lingle Mungo was a fantastic pitcher, but his Dodgers were a second division laughingstock. Over his five prime years, the Dodgers went 335 and 430 and finished no higher than fifth out of eight teams. He would rear all the way back and fire every pitch as though it were his last. He felt like he had to carry the team on his back with every single pitch, and he wasn't wrong. For years, Mungo was the only bright spot at Ebbets Field. Brooklynites would stop sports writers on the street and simply ask, how's he doing, or how's the arm? They didn't need to say his name, though I certainly would have left at every opportunity to say Van Lingle Mungo. For example, Mungo towed the rubber on May 6, 1937 in Brooklyn, as he pitched a large aircraft past overhead, but hardly anyone noticed. After all, the arm was pitching. That aircraft was the Hindenburg, and it crashed and burned just a few hours later in Lakehurst, New Jersey. Mungo shone right from the start. He debuted on the most auspicious of dates, my birthday, September 7th, 1931. He twirled a complete game shutout, allowing just three hits and striking out seven. He even went two for three with a triple and a single. Before the game, though, Mungo busted the sole on one of his spikes. Brooklyn veteran pitcher Dazzy Vance offered up his cleats for use. Vance was 40 years old by then and had been a fan favorite and longtime Brooklyn great. On that day, Van Lingle Mungo literally and figuratively stepped into Dazzy Vance's shoes. 
before every season, Mungo would promise anyone and everyone that he would win 20 games. It would end up being another unfulfilled promise. The Dodgers were so poor, he reached just 18 in his best season. His fielders were inept, and the offense was even worse. Once, after Dodger outfielder Tom Winsett made a base running error and cost Mungo a victory, he destroyed everything he could in the dugout and clubhouse. Then, still steaming, he stormed all the way down several blocks to the telegraph office to wire his wife, pack up your bags and come to Brooklyn, honey. If a Winsett can play in the big leagues, it's a cinch you can too. In his last start of the 1934 season, Mungo faced the hated New York Giants on the polo grounds. The Giants were 93-58 and 58 and tied for first with St. Louis. The Dodgers were 69-81 and 81 and in sixth. Giants manager Bill Terry quipped, are the Dodgers even still in the league? Mungo had already tossed over 300 innings that year, but Stengel stuck with his ace. Mungo went the distance, holding the mighty Giants to one run and striking out seven. Three of those Ks came consecutively in the ninth inning with two men on base. He also went two for five with an RBI and the run scored. The Cardinals clinched the pennant. Mungo made four all-star games from 1934 to 37, but I want to talk about that last one. It was what I like to call the Fallen Stars game. Three days beforehand, Mungo was pulled from the game after straining his hip. Giants manager Bill Terry, who helmed the NL that year in the All-Star game, promised not to use him. It would be another unfulfilled promise. The starter of that game was Dizzy Dean. At the time, Dean and Mungo were the two best pitchers in the National League. Diz was hit in the foot on a comebacker from Earl Averill that left him injured and forced him to change his motion, which then hurt his arm. He would never be the same. Later on, Terry put Mungo in the game despite explicit instructions not to do so. As one could guess, Mungo aggravated the injury. That, mixed with the many, many innings already on his arm, took the zip off his storied fastball. From that point on, he too would never be the same. As he declined, the Dodgers actually got good, and Mungo's drinking got worse. Entering the 1941 season, the Dodgers were in spring training in Cuba. Mungo made his typical promise to manager Leo DeRocha, claiming he'd win 20 games. He also claimed he would no longer be drinking. Both promises would go unfulfilled. After his first scheduled start got rained out, a disappointed Mungo retreated back to the hotel and hit the bottle. He got drunk and ordered a round for everyone in the joint, including the two men at the end of the bar, one of whom just so happened to be Leo DeRocher. DeRocher got so mad that the next day he refused to give Mungo the ball for his start. In fact, he told him to go back to the hotel. He said Mungo would be catching a boat off the island that evening. As Mungo proceeded to again tie one on that evening, he missed the boat. The Dodgers hired a detective to trail him and ensure he caught a 10 a.m. flight the next morning. So, VLM went up to his room early. But two ladies, one of whom a dancer from Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, who named herself Christina, joined him for the night. The trio enjoyed the Havana nightlife. But when Christina's husband discovered her in Mungo's bed, the two men turned to fisticuffs. The Dodgers got Mungo out of there. But the man he wronged pursued Mungo with a butcher's knife. Van Lingle Mungo had to be snuck out of the hotel in a laundry cart and put on the next boat to Miami. After that debacle, the club was so disgusted with him, they relegated him to the minor league Montreal Royals. He pitched just two innings for Brooklyn that year. And that season, the team that had always failed to support its star pitcher through his prime won 100 games in the pennant. For the second time that year, Mungo missed the boat. In his retirement, he bought a theater in his South Carolina hometown, and he built an upper balcony to cater to the black clientele who had previously been barred from that facility. Maybe Van Lingle Mungo had some empathy for those facing unfair circumstances. But perhaps the worst slight came in 1969, when his name, perhaps the greatest name in sports history, was used as the title of a novelty song. To this day, more people know of Mungo as the namesake for that silly tune, rather than his status as a Brooklyn icon. 
or how his rage-filled antics brought such color to the sports pages of the Brooklyn Eagle, or how, as a young pitcher, he made scouts and managers swoon over the immense promise held in his blazing fastball. How unfair. Wow, that's a crazy, crazy story. Because it's one of those things where you said it, I know the name, but I couldn't even tell you what position he played, Like, let alone the fact that he was a four-time All-Star and like one of the best pitchers in baseball. Baseball produces so many of those players who are stars, but are just strapped to really bad teams. I mean, Ernie Banks, obviously. Andre Dawson was on some bad teams. Pretty much any cup you bring up throughout history that was any good. Mike Trout has been on some some pretty bad teams. He was one of the best pitchers of his time, but the Dodgers were a laughingstock. Dominant pitcher, but but just not even positive winning records, which is insane. I've got some nerd stuff here. I've got what I call a research rundown. Some numbers here for you stat heads. So Van Lingle Mungo led the league in strikeouts once. His 238 strikeouts in 1936 were the most in the NL at that time since 1924 when Dazzy Vance did it. No one had even reached 200 since 1928. Vance did it at that point too. No one would reach Mungo's mark in the National League again until Don Drysdale in 1959. So that's between 1936 and 1959. No one else equaled that single season total for Mungo. Only one player even came within 13 of that mark. Dazzy Vance, Van Lingle Mungo, Don Drysdale, all Dodger pitchers. I mean, that doesn't necessarily surprise me. If you look at his like strikeouts per nine innings, he's like close to seven in a time where people were barely getting three or four. He's such a dominant power pitcher, you can see. It's something else. You know, he led he led the league in, in K per nine each year from, from 35 to 37. He averaged 6.6. He tried to go for a strikeout every single time, he said, because his fielders just weren't good enough. He was literally like, you guys can't do anything. I'm going to have to win this myself. Oftentimes he did. By his own estimation, Mungo paid $15,000 in fines over his career. He's one of the most fined players of all time. That was about a year's salary for him at his peak. And that comes out to over $277,000 today, adjusting for inflation. Mungo led the league in fielding independent pitching, which only factors in strikeouts, your walks, your home runs. He led the majors in FIP in 36 and 37, and he needed to. The Dodgers ranked seventh in errors in 1936 and dead last in 37 in the National League. Yeah, it kind of gives credence to the fact that FIP does work to show a pitcher's quality over the team defense because he's obviously a dominant pitcher, but his other stats wouldn't necessarily show it just because of the quality of his team. You know, what was also cool about Mungo is that I've kind of mentioned that he could handle the bat. I mentioned that he got hits here and there and some of his prominent wins. He actually sort of approached hitting the same way that he did pitching. When he pitched, he tried to get a strikeout every single time. When he hit, he swung to the fences every single time, even though he never hit a home run. And after Stengel told him to, you know, stop swinging for the fences and just try and hit the ball, make contact, he hit 289 over 90 at-bats in 1935. In fact, when he was injured in 1939, DeRocher used him as a pinch hitter and over 33 plate appearances, he slashed 345, 406, 448 with an OPS plus of 125. Obviously a small sample size, but an arm that could hammer nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, he's just a monster athlete. He also had 24 pinch running appearances. Like they just, he was their only good player. And so that's just kind of insane that this, this is what he did. But if he was on a better team during this time period, he'd go down as one of the greatest pitchers of all time. He would have won 20 to 25 games every year. He probably would have reached the World Series at some point. They used him in left field from time to time. Actually, during one, at one point when they used him as a pinch runner while his arm was injured, 
he slid when he slid into second base, he injured his ankle also. He gave everything that he had for just these awful, awful Dodger teams. On June 25th, 1936, Mungo tied a major league record by striking out seven Reds in a row. In the complete game effort, he fanned 11 total. He gave up three earned runs. The Dodgers lost five to four. Brutal. If that doesn't define Van Lingle Mungo's career in one game, I, you know, I don't know what does. An absolute legend. With, like I said, I think, I honestly think the best name in, in sports history. In you know, sports like, history, but more than a name too. A legend in Brooklyn. That's and a great be point. a baseball legend, but unfortunately not. I mean, if you're a guy who you're so good and people could just be like, how's the arm doing? There's only one arm in Brooklyn, and that was Van Lingle Mungo. He sounds like a cartoon character. He sounds and acted like a cartoon. cartoon Van Lingle Mungo. It, it sounds like you mashed three random syllables, like a few random syllables together. And if you needed a cartoon baseball player, I can imagine it. He's throwing fastballs, and they're like knocking the catcher backwards ten feet. He kind of had a cartoonish motion too. Like he leaned his he leaned his body all the way back so that his arm was almost parallel with his with his back leg. You know, one of those old-timey pitchers, like, oh, yeah. really reared back and just fired. The newest member of the canon, Van Lingle Mungo. He got the $5,000 contract guarantee that was in his deal if he was the RBI leader. 1961. All right, Jacob, let's hear about your guy. Lay it on. In 2012, the legend of Mike Trout was born. At just 20 years old, the rookie put up one of the greatest seasons in MLB history, accruing 10.5 wins above replacement. Unfortunately for Trout, his historic year coincided with a slightly more significant piece of history, Miguel Cabrera picking up the first triple crown in almost a half century. And despite having almost three less wins to his name, Miggy took home the hardware of MVP. Similarly, in the 2016 NBA season, for Russell Westbrook, averaging a triple-double was enough to give him the edge in the MVP race over a potentially more deserving James Harden. And so this kind of proves that oftentimes winning the MVP doesn't mean having the best season. It just means doing something the likes of which we haven't seen before. However, unlike Trout or Harden, who would eventually be able to get to their much-deserved recognition, Baltimore Orioles slugger Jim Gentile was forever left in the shadows. As in 1961, the year Maris and Mantle battled it out for the single-season home run record and placed one and two in the MVP voting respectively, Perhaps just as impressive was the third-place finish of the second-year first baseman Gentile. In 1961, Gentile launched 46 home runs, tallied 141 RBIs, and hit 302, 423, 646. In most other seasons, he would have been a runaway favorite for the MVP award. However, in this season, Maris's 61 home runs doomed Gentile's record run to obscurity despite the two finishing the, same, the season with the same wins above replacement. In fact, through mid-June, Gentile was keeping pace in the home run race with the M&M boys before they eventually pulled away in July. Gentile's 61 season was just his second season in the major leagues, despite being 27 years old. And he was actually a year older than the MVP Maris, despite having five less years of major league experience. The experience gap between these players can largely be summed up by Gentile's nickname, Diamond Jim which was given to him by Dodgers legend Roy Campanella because Gentile was a diamond in the rough in basically every sense of the word. Gentile came into professional baseball as a pitcher in the Dodgers organization, where he put up a pretty respectable 3.65 ERA. 
However, the peripherals were not so kind to Jim as he walked almost seven batters per nine innings and had a whip of almost two. He was forced to transition to offense where the Dodgers thought he could be used better. And so it took him a few seasons in the minor leagues to kind of fully embrace the transition to, to being a player in the field. But by the start of the 1956 season, Gentile was hoping to start in AAA and eventually get his way up to the Dodgers. But Dodgers GM Buzzy Bavasi insisted that Gentile wasn't ready for AAA and almost guaranteed that he would struggle in the AA Texas League. So Gentile made Bavasi pay literally for keeping him in AA for one more season. As Bavasi was so confident Gentile would struggle in the Texas League, the GM told him that he would pay the prospect $100 for every home run he hit past his 25th of the season. And Gentile responded by mashing 40 home runs and cashing a $1,500 check. By 1957, Gentile was probably ready to make the jump to the major leagues, but unfortunately for the first baseman, he spent most of the season in AAA again because the Dodgers had Gil Hodges locking down first base. And Gentile began to kind of regret his move to first base altogether. He said when he first moved to first base, he didn't know about Gil Hodges. And so by the end of 1957, Gentile was able to get a cup of coffee in the major leagues, but he notched just seven plate appearances. But he certainly made those plate appearances count. He homered off Robin Roberts, and he got a start in the Dodgers' final game played in Brooklyn over Gil Hodges. Gentile went back to the minors in 1958, and he really couldn't stand wasting away in minor league purgatory when he really thought he should be playing in the big leagues, especially given his minor league success. And so only naturally, he punched his hand through a water cooler and almost lost his index finger, eventually needing 12 stitches to reattach it. And that kind of ended his 1958 season. And so now he's basically three years removed from when he considered himself to be a major league ready player. And he continued to invent new ways not to get promoted. As he spent a large portion of the AAA season suspended by his AAA manager for perhaps the most preposterous reason. As Gentile tells the story, one night I was at the bar. He, being the manager, was trying to put the whammy on some girl. She turned him down and came over to drink with me. And from then on, I don't think he liked me. Later that season, The manager had two women sitting above the dugout in Omaha. And as Gentile puts it, you couldn't help but notice them as you were coming into the dugout. Well, he comes in and says to me, keep your eyes off those women above the dugout, Gentile. He insists that these two incidents are responsible for his suspension for for the second half of 1959 and his inability to get promoted to the Dodgers at the end of that season. Finally, by the end of that season, the Dodgers traded Gentile to Baltimore for $50,000 because they were done putting up with his antics. And Gentile would finally get his shot in the show, where he would eventually channel his anger for good. Gentile would start at first base for the Orioles in 1960 and would be one of three O's rookies named to the All-Star team. However, this was all just setting the stage for Gentile's historic 1961 season. Beyond the impressive numbers we already discussed, Gentile's 1961 season was best symbolized by one thing the Grand Slam. On May 9th that season versus the Minnesota Twins, Gentile smashed an 0-2 fastball out to right field for a first inning Grand Slam. He would come back up to the plate again in the second inning. With the bases loaded, he hit the first pitch he saw for his second Grand Slam of the game. At the time, Gentile became just the fourth player in baseball history to hit two Grand Slams in the same game and is still the only player to do it on back-to-back pitches. Gentile continued to keep the Grand Slam records coming launching three more blasts before the season was all said and done, tying the record for most Grand Slams in a season with five, later to be broken by Don Mattingly. Gentile's rise to stardom was almost as quick as his fall, as after another all-star caliber season in 62, he began a rapid decline. A combination of changing his batting stance to no success, accusations by his manager for lack of hustle, he was out of Baltimore after just four seasons. 
but not before launching 124 home runs and making six all-star appearances. Now, you might be saying, Jacob, he played four seasons in Baltimore. How did he make six all-star appearances? But the major leagues played two all-star games a season from 1959 to 1962 because the players wanted more money from the all-star game. So they had two separate elections. They had an election in June where the players were elected to an all-star game they played in early July. And then they had an election immediately following the first all-star game for a second all-star game played in later July to give other players an opportunity to participate. But the biggest stars in the game would often play in both all-star games. After leaving Baltimore, Gentile struggled to catch on in Kansas City and was eventually sent to Houston. And once again, when he got frustrated, Gentile's anger got the best of him. After being called out on strikes, he smashed his bat and threw it like a projectile at home plate umpire Ed Vargo. Later that day, Gentile was demoted for his antics, effectively ending his career. But there's one more story about Gentile that must be told before we finish. As I mentioned before, in Gentile's 1961 season, he drove in 141 runs. Well, for years after the fact, it was believed that Roger Maris led the league with 142 RBIs. However, at some point in 2010, someone realized that Maris had been given one erroneous RBI. Gentile's contract with Baltimore promised him a $5,000 bonus if he led the league in RBIs, which is when the Orioles brought him back to allegedly throw out the first pitch. But instead, when he stepped onto the field, team president Andy McPhail walked out and handed him a $5,000 check. Gentile was astounded and taken aback. And finally, 50 years later, he got the recognition that in 1961, he and Roger Maris were in some way equals. Wow. So we've got two pretty big hotheads here, huh? He was a hothead, but also a um, beloved personality. His teammates often talked about, you know, how his energy in the clubhouse really inspired and, and rallied the team. But at the same time, when things weren't going his way, it really led to problems. He often had run-ins with his minor league managers. And eventually when he struggled, his temper kind of brought him out of baseball. I would be pretty pissed too if I was held down in the minor leagues, but I was jacking 40 home runs. Yeah, he had multiple 30 home run seasons in the minor leagues, and the Dodgers just didn't have a spot for him and refused to trade him. Starting off as a pitcher, I figured that might try him out in the outfield, especially if they have Gil Hodges at first base. Yeah, I think he was relatively unathletic. Despite the fact that he was a pitcher, I think he just kind of threw hard. One of the quotes from his manager in Baltimore is they traded for him based on the stats, and when he got to Baltimore in spring training, the coach looked at him and said, I hope you can hit better than you look, otherwise you're gone. When he got to Baltimore, they had a clause in the deal where after 120 at-bats, they reserved the right to send him back to the Dodgers. So he was really determined not to go back to L.A. And his 120 at-bat stretch at the start of his Orioles career is like one of the best offensive stretches of any rookie ever. Oh, yeah? Made the All-Star game that year, obviously. Made both All-Star games that year. I did know about the two All-Star game thing because I I only found that out like a while ago. I looked up Willie Mays, or I was like reading with Willie Mays' Wikipedia, and I was like, he went to how many All-Star games? It's a very weird, Willie Mays is a 24-time All-Star, which is just crazy. But if you consider that he got an additional four All-Star games for this weird dumb two all-star game thing it was one year when they played the two all-star games two days apart so they basically was the same players in both games but they got credit for multiple all-star games it might even be better to do that system nowadays since like there has to be a player from every team and so all-star rosters are gigantic so one of the interesting things about the all-star game for uh jim gentile 
is that he made his first All-Star game as a rookie, and he was very excited about playing in the All-Star game. And he was even going to play in his hometown um, of San Francisco, where they were having the All-Star game, because the Giants had obviously just moved out to San Francisco. And as he's coming out of the dugout, the PA announcer announces his name is Don Gentile, and he was pissed off about it. He went back to the dugout and started like yelling at the PA guy, because Don Gentile was apparently some flying ace from World War II, and the PA guy had just gotten the names confused because they had the same last name. And so that was an incident that he ran into at the All-Star game. And then he was like, I think I was going to be cursed at that All-Star game. He struck out twice and he made an error and he was all pissed off about it. When you brought up that he had this awesome season during their Maris run and that he played for the Orioles, it was like, oh, how interesting. Because I know a little bit of trivia that, that Maris hit his 60th home run to tie Babe Ruth against the Orioles. But I looked at the game log on his baseball reference. It doesn't look like he played in that game. Interesting. They were pretty strict about platooning him. Like, they've removed him from the game, like, basically whenever they brought in a lefty reliever. It was, it was an interesting platoon where he would play in almost every game, but he would play a lot of half games because if a lefty starter was in the game, they wouldn't put him in until they put in a righty reliever. And if there was a lefty reliever brought in, they would remove him from the game. And so despite the fact that he put up, you know, insane numbers, he actually did it in a, like a smaller number of plate appearances than you'd expect. In the game where he hit two grand slams, they removed him from the game in the sixth inning because they brought in a lefty reliever. And people were like, what are you doing? Like, you should have him go for some RBIs record. And they were like, no, this is the system. We remove him from the game when they put in a lefty. And so his, his line on the day was two for three with two grand slams and nine RBIs. Wow. Stupid righty-lefty splits. Billy Bean can make that mistake. He doesn't care about righty-lefty. And, I mean, just to kind of connect everything to the overall concept that we're doing here, he played in Houston alongside Jimmy Wynn. And although Jimmy Wynn was able to succeed at hitting home runs in the Astrodome, Gentile was not as successful. He hated the Astrodome and was always complaining about how large it was and how he couldn't hit balls out of it. And I think he ended up hitting seven home runs during his time in Houston, and six of them were on the road. He still ended up having, like, a respectable OPS there. Well, at least he did did fine relative to the league. You know, it's 1966. It's the middle of the the second dead ball era. Over those first six years, he had an OPS plus of 139. The real issue for him is that he was just doing things that people didn't necessarily respect. When his home run numbers were down and the average was low and his RBI totals were kind of low and he was getting accused of not really hustling, people weren't looking at OPS and they weren't, you know, saying those kind of things about him. I mean, even in his last season, which people consider to be an abject failure, his OPS plus was above 100. Yeah. He had a positive relationship with teammate Rocky Colavito, but when he was in Kansas City, he got into it with him a little bit because he would hit four and Colavito would hit three and Colavito would just clean up the bases and get a bunch of RBIs. And so hitting right behind him, Gentile got almost no chances. So he only had 71 RBIs. And that's just basically because there was never anyone on base for him. So he was kind of frustrated by that. That's a good second class of our toy cannon cannon. Exactly. Two players who originally came up with the Brooklyn Dodgers, one who was stuck with the Brooklyn Dodgers in the major leagues, another who was stuck with the Brooklyn Dodgers in the minor leagues, both eventually had to get checks from a McPhail. So Jim Gentile, you've been canonized. 
thank you guys for joining us for the second episode. As we go, we're going to keep working out the kinks and ironing out the details. It's still early in this process, but we're having a lot of fun. Nowhere to go but up, but we hope that you guys all learned something and, you know, are excited moving forward. Just one more time so the name gets stuck in your head, I'm going to leave you with Van Lingle Mungo. Thank you.